It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, What Sins Can Never Be Forgiven? Coming up in this episode, as Christians, we've heard of committing sins that are in God's eyes unforgivable. The big question is, am I in danger of committing any of those sins? How do I know? How can I be sure that I won't be deceived into an irreversible trap? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Everybody sins. We can't help it because we're imperfect, and therefore we will inevitably fall. As Christians, we can and should claim the amazing advocacy of Jesus, ask forgiveness, make right what we did wrong, and move on. But are there sins that go beyond what Jesus can help us with? Are there sins that once committed doom us to eternal death? Well, the scriptures do say that such sins exist. The good news is that the Bible is specific about what they are and how they work. The difficult news is that some verses are hard to understand, and that can lead to confusion. So, What are sins that go beyond forgiveness, and how can we stay away from them? This is one of the more popular questions we receive at our email address of inspiration at christianquestions.com. People ask what the unpardonable sin committed against the Holy Spirit is and what the sin unto death is. They ask for reassurance that they didn't commit such sins either intentionally or subconsciously in either acts or even thoughts. Some are concerned that they were once atheists and might have committed such a sin in their past. Okay, a lot of concerns, a lot of worry, so let's look at this. There's actually three main New Testament scriptures that come up that describe what is a, quote, sin unto death and what it looks like. We're going to discuss all three of these scriptures by putting them in each of their own larger contexts. So, first of all, here are the three scriptures. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jude 1, 12 and 13 says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. <laughs> now that's some vivid imagery. I'm looking forward to digging into that one. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, It is impossible to renew again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So we've got these three main scriptures that deal with very specific things. Take them one at a time. Let's start 
with Matthew. The strong statement reflected in our theme scripture, Jonathan, that you read previously, was given by Jesus as a response to a very serious accusation that the scribes and Pharisees made against Jesus regarding his God-given healing abilities. While we will primarily use the Matthew account to explain what happens here as the basis for our discussion, this statement of Jesus is also mentioned in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30, and Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. So let's begin. We're going to be looking at Matthew 12, verses 22 to 37. Beginning with verses 22 through 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul is another name for Beelzebub, we might have heard that, associated with the Canaanite god called Baal, and often is used synonymously as a name for Satan. And these were dramatically different reactions. The crowd's thoughts went to Jesus being the Messiah, and the Pharisees, being territorial and feeling threatened, went to the other extreme and said, the power came from Satan. Yeah, and when you think about Baal, you, you go back to Elijah, and you think about how dramatically dark that was. And that's where the accusation is pointing, to that same kind of drama as in the account of Elijah. And we all know, you know how Elijah won that victory. So this accusation that Jesus was healing through the power of Baal, through evil power, rather than God's power, this needed to be dealt with. So Jesus begins to refute this evil claim by proclaiming its senselessness. So he is now going to logically diffuse this accusation. So Matthew 12, 25 to 27. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city of house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If it by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So that expression, by whom do your sons cast them out? Who are these sons? So we we looked into this, and some Bible commentaries think that they were the students of the Pharisees, and that Jesus is saying, well, if you're saying Satan is behind the casting out of demons, why aren't you saying that when your people do it? But other Bible commentaries say these sons were perhaps followers of John the Baptist, casting out demons in Jesus's name. And apparently the Pharisees left them alone. The context does seem to lean in that direction. And there's an example of this in Mark 9, 38 to 40. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And this seems to be a classic case of what Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in the 1800s said, envy causes persons often to condemn in one what they approve in another. <laughs> and, and again, we're looking at this dramatic, dramatic accusation by the Pharisees. And Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't always respond. 
and he didn't always respond uh, uh, fully. But here, he is settling in, and it's like there's this battle to be fought, and he is just putting it right back to them. Next, Jesus, in his response after saying, look, Satan can't cast out Satan, use your head, because Satan would fall, because he'd be against himself. Jesus next informs them that his actions are evidence of God's kingdom being right in front of them. Matthew 12, 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when Jesus was being accused, he was saying, the Messiah that the nation has been in expectation of is now in your presence. And you're saying that I am of the devil? Really? I am here to fulfill the promises. So he's putting it to them in a very forceful way. It is very clear, very plain, and Jesus is not backing down an inch. This, is get, this gets bigger as his explanation goes further because they have crossed a line that they should not have crossed, and he's going to show them that. Next, next after saying that the kingdom of God is before you, Jesus, in the form of a very short little parable— proclaims that God's kingdom is before them because he has come, he, Jesus, come to take Satan's kingdom from him. And that's in Matthew 12, 29 and 30. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house, Satan's invisible realm, and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then Jesus will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So let's take a quick look at that. That strong man, like you said, is Satan. Satan had control over the possessed person, but Jesus was stronger and able to subdue him. So in the larger sense, the binding of Satan happens in the phases of Jesus's first and second advents until Satan, we are assured, is finally destroyed. So you have the pattern set. And the pattern, it's interesting that the pattern for Jesus for, for, for Jesus overcoming and destroying Satan begins with his ministry. It be, you know what the first part of his ministry was? Going off into the wilderness, Satan tempting him, and Jesus overcoming it. Right there, you see the pattern that began to unfold in a bigger and bigger and bigger way. So, you know, you've got this strong man, and really, he, essentially, we see that Satan is a straw man because he just can't stand under the against the influence of God through Jesus. So, what has Jesus done so far? He's explained that Satan can't stand against himself. He's explained that the kingdom of God is before them. He's explained that he's coming to take Satan out. He's drawn a line in the sand with his critics. If they were not with him, then they would have taken the side of Satan himself. He is making a very plain point because they made a very dark accusation. Already, there's much more to what Jesus is teaching than meets the eye. Accusing God's power of being satanic is not smart. Jesus has laid the groundwork and will now show them their folly. The question is, what was he really saying? All right, now we get to the core of our question. Jesus has bluntly shown the seriousness of accusing him of working amazing miracles by the powers of darkness. That's insulting. His next step will be to honestly and forcefully proclaim to them that such statements made by those with spiritual authority, as the Pharisees, cannot be inconsequential and go unnoticed. He is putting them on notice. 
you are responsible for yourself. And here's, here, here's where he goes next. Jesus next makes a strong and easily misunderstood statement regarding God's judgment. Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. All right, so there's the big question. We all sin. What did he mean by blasphemy against the Spirit? Because people want to know if they've committed this special category of sin, either intentionally or unintentionally, if they joked around or by thoughts that pop into their heads. So we want to understand, what does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit? Because you're right, that is one of the really big questions here. So let's do some defining, and let's go back and put all the pieces together. So Jonathan, let's define what we're hearing Jesus say. Let's look at blasphemy and then forgiven. Well, it means vilify or slander. And to vilify means to speak or write about in an abusively disparaging manner, to speak evil of belittle, malign, debase, degrade. And the word translated forgiven means to send forth. And in the Greek English lexicon, it means to send away. So they're very, very dramatic words. The vilification, to vilify, to slander, it's very, very dark. The word for forgiveness or being forgiven here means literally to, to, to send something away or send forth. And this word for forgiving here is very broadly used in the New Testament. It does cover God, uh, godly forgiveness and human forgiveness. It's the word that most clearly reflects our forgiveness of one another and is often used regarding Jesus forgiving people's sins. You know, he would heal and say, go and, you know, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. So this is the word that comes up in, in all of those instances. Let's look at Matthew uh, eighteen twenty one as an example. And this is from the New Revised Standard Version. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if any member of the church sins against me, how often shall I forgive? As many as seven times? Now, forgiveness is one of the more misunderstood concepts in the Bible. And for more detail than we have time to go into now, we encourage people to listen to episode 935, Does God Really Forgive Me? Blasphemy, vilification, slander, detraction, injurious speech, and forgiveness, sending away. These are two very important aspects of what does it mean to blaspheme the, 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 the Holy Spirit? What is, and is that something that is such a big thing that it's going to end your life forever? Jesus is saying that vilifying God's Spirit is a sin of the highest level of seriousness. Everybody looking at this verse is going to tell you that. To the point of it not being a sin that can be simply put away from the guilty one. Meaning it won't be pardoned, it won't be treated as though we never did such a thing, something else is required. Right, and that's important. It won't be treated as though you didn't do something, because you did, and this is the kind of thing that there has to be something else, there has to be some kind of consequence, some kind of recompense. Jesus continues describing this sin's magnitude, so he's, he's mentioned it, that blasphemy against God's Spirit will not be forgiven, will not be sent away. Now he expands that. He goes further with Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the next age to come. Now, this seems odd that you can speak badly about Jesus and be forgiven, but you can't speak against the Holy Spirit. I mean, it seems one should do neither, but why <laughs> is one worse? Well, you're right. Nobody 
should be involved exactly. in either of those things. However, what is the difference? That's a really good question. And, and, and I think the answer to that question has to do with the fact that God's spirit, God's influence, the blaspheming of the spirit that we had in the example of the Pharisees, it was its power, its positive, wholesome, loving, wise, miraculous power was displayed right in front of them. Jesus walking down the road, you can look at him and say, and say, well, there's that guy. And you can say bad things about that guy, that person. Now, you shouldn't, okay? You just shouldn't. The difference is you're looking at a person versus an actual representation of the very power of God himself. You don't go and look at that and call it darkness. You don't do that. You, and Jesus said, you can say whatever you want about me. And remember, they said crucify him. Those sins would be forgiven. Those sins would be wiped away by his, by his death. So there's a dramatic difference. It is the, 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 the expressed and understandable power of God that has this extra line drawn with it. So let's go further now with this. Does this mean that this sin always brings eternal destruction? We believe the answer is no. Now, that may come as a shock, and some people are like, what? Let's reason through this. Someone blaspheming the Holy Spirit in this age is met with the consequence of a sin that stays with them. I want you to remember that. It's not sent away. It stays with them. It's not forgiven. Not, again, sent away, because that's what the word means. Jesus' statement applies at two different times. First, we believe it primarily applied to those of the Jewish nation who had Jesus right in front of them. Jesus said they would not be forgiven, and he demonstrated this near the end of his ministry. So we want to say, no, this doesn't mean this, this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit doesn't guarantee eternal destruction. It does not and we, we need to expand this a little further. The Pharisees vilified God's spirit by saying, this incredible thing that you've done, Jesus, is of the devil right. and not by the power of God. Though these spiritual leaders, including the Pharisees, eventually led the nation to reject Jesus, like you said, crucify him and have him killed. And we see over and over again how influential leadership was, for good and bad, in the examples of the kings ruling over Israel and Judah. And yes, good kings who respected and listened to God brought God's favor and protection to the people. Bad kings who committed idolatry and caused the people to do the same were rejected by God and the people suffered. Now, speaking of followers getting you into trouble, I've just got to bring this to you both. There's a bunch of silly TikTok videos going around where people call on the Holy Spirit saying, Holy Spirit, activate in jest before they do something difficult or that they don't want to do. And it started from what someone famous said on a game show. It gets repeated over and over as a funny meme. And that would certainly qualify as impious behavior. We had a, a, a listener who wrote in and said, I did this. I, I said these words. I joked around. Is participating in something irreverently what this is talking about? So we're talking about vilifying the Holy Spirit. And, and I have to admit, folks, even though I didn't like it, I watched that, that TikTok thing because Julie was oh, describing it to me. So dumb. And she sent it to me, and it's like, okay, I have to see this. And it's foolishness. It's utter foolishness. Now, and here, here's my, my immediate answer. The people doing this 
and and folks, this is not a disrespectful statement, but a statement that I truly believe are ignorant when it comes to understanding God's Spirit. They do not understand what they are talking about. It's a game to them. And even, look, some Christians may get involved in that. It's a game, and it's an unfortunate, sad, insulting game. Is it vilifying the Holy Spirit? If someone who understands and reverences and has God's Spirit plays a game with it, now you're getting into the vilifying. But you're not there yet. And with that, no, it's not, because it's done in ignorance. Now, if you've done it and you're listening to this, take note that you now know if you did it in ignorance, if you're given extra more, more, more knowledge, you have more responsibility. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is God's power we're talking about. It is not something to be made light of ever under any circumstances. But is it blasphemy? I don't believe it is because there's an ignorance attached to it. So let's go a little further. Okay, we've looked at Jesus saying it's not going to be forgiven, not be sent away from you. And so we have what we believe the Pharisees engaging in this sin. They're engaging in vilifying God's Spirit by accusing Jesus of healing by the power of the devil. This, this, you're taking the highest, most powerful, most beautiful power in, that, that the creation has ever known, and you're saying it's dark and evil. That's as bad as you can get in terms of, of, of insulting God himself by insulting his power. They were punished. Matthew chapter 23 verses 37 and 38, puts this, I think, in a, in a broader, understandable perspective. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The words being left... Your house is being left to you desolate. Those words are the same words used for forgiven, shall sent away. So here's what happened. Matthew 23, this is after Jesus lectures the Pharisees. He gives them the woes. Woe unto you, 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 you hypocrites. And he's telling them and telling them and telling them. And then he pronounces their punishment. What's their punishment? Not that their sin is sent away from them, but that their favor, their house of favor is sent away from them. That's their punishment. They lost national favor. And when we look at that, we see something big happening. It's a, an enormous consequence. Israel's sins were not forgiven as they would as a nation, as you guys already mentioned, reject Jesus and thereby forfeit the national opportunity to become the exclusive source of the heavenly calling to discipleship and the spiritual seed of Abraham. The nation of Israel will not be lost. They will bless all the families of the earth as the prophecy tells us in Zechariah 8, 22 to 23. We know that their judgment was not final. They will be the blesser seed and spread the good news to everyone for a chance of recovery. So that's the future. Now you go back to behold your house being left to you desolate. What exactly happened? Just a few years later after that statement was made, um, a few years later in AD 70, Jerusalem was ransacked. The temple was destroyed and the people were scattered as punishment. And it wasn't until 1948 in our modern day when the nation of Israel was regathered as prophesied. Now, the principle is 
it's never appropriate to mock or reject God's favor. It eventually leads to eternal destruction for some. And we're going to talk about a little later who would be subject to such an end. So you see a very vivid uh, punishment for the Pharisees and for Israel. And it's interesting, the Mark account, remember we were talking about that this account was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Mark account of this conversation and this proclamation by Jesus to the Pharisees from Young's literal translation helps us to see this in, in, a, in, in a more detailed way with these verses. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Verily I say to you that all the sins shall be forgiven to the sons of men, and evil speaking with which they might speak evil. But whoever may speak evil in regard to the Holy Spirit hath not forgiveness, meaning pardon, to the age, but is in danger of age-during judgment, meaning judgment during that time. And that's exactly what happened to the Pharisees in Israel. Now, Rick, in our last meeting, you said, depth of the consequence is based on the height of their favor. What does that mean? Well, and what we were talking about was how incredibly blessed Israel was, not only to have been God's chosen people for, for, for 1,800 years before Jesus came, but to have the Messiah walking the earth with them in their presence. And they took that, and they turned it upside down, and they called it evil, and they called it dark. And it says, you know, you're, you're, you're in danger of age during judgment. So what age of time, what, what period of time was this happening in? This was in the time where the gospel is being preached. And so it's interesting to me that Israel was cast off as a nation for the last 1,800 plus years, 1,900 years now, and only recently has come back as a nation. They were literally punished for the age of the gospel. It's just, you, you look at that and say, that's a big punishment. Yes, because the sin could not just be wiped away like you never did it. That's why. Now, here's the thing. Jesus verifies that those who were judged and punished with desolation, Israel as a nation, were not condemned to eternal death. The very next verse in Matthew 23, after he says, your house is left unto you desolate, 2339 says this. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who was saying, Blessed is he? The Pharisees. First, they vilified the Lord, and then they will be praising him when they are resurrected in the day of judgment. It's important to remember, that's who he was talking to. And so what Jesus is saying is, you are going to pay dearly for this as a nation. But actually, there's, there's even more to this. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12, where we, where we began this discussion. Jesus, in Matthew 12, continues the thought of the Pharisees being held responsible for their words and actions. And in the next verses, he says that they're not only responsible in the present age, but in the next age as well. Matthew 12, uh, Jonathan, let's read 33 and 34, and then 36 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
I just want to go back real quick to Jonathan, what you said about um, that they would be praising him when resurrected in the day of judgment. Their sins not being forgiven didn't mean that they lost out on having a resurrection in God's kingdom. That's really important. These Pharisees are highlighted as a special example. Although they weren't begotten of the Holy Spirit, because remember, that doesn't happen until Pentecost in the book of Acts. They were the chosen people, part of the chosen people. They were very learned in the law and the prophecies about Messiah. And most importantly, they actually, like you've said, had Jesus right in front of them. They had the direct witness of the Holy Spirit at work through his miracles and his ministry. Their own pride and desire to preserve their leadership status blinded them from admitting the obvious. It did. It did. And they chose to follow that blinded approach. They absolutely made this choice. And here's the thing. There was this judgment of desolation for the nation. That was very obvious. But Jesus is also saying, you also have the judgment of your personal responsibility that comes with your resurrection. So the moral of this story is, this is a sin that doesn't walk away from you just because Jesus says, oh, you're forgiven, because you have vilified the, the power, the light of God himself. So, Jonathan, we've got sin, judgment, and forgiveness. Let's begin to put it in perspective. Jesus spoke very firmly to the Pharisees about their utterly godless accusation that he healed by the power of Satan. The penalty for their willful denial of Jesus and the mighty works he did through the power of God's Spirit would lock them out of God's favor for a very long time. Their vilification of God's Spirit not only cost them national favor, it would also weigh them down with responsibility at their resurrection. So the responsibility of this sin had an immediate effect, and then it had a long-term effect, an immediate national effect and a long-term personal effect. And we need to take this example with great sobriety and seriousness, because what they did was that dark and that wrong. The power of Jesus' words cannot be underestimated. We always need to think about what we're thinking about. Jesus wasted no words with the Pharisees. What lesson could we learn about unforgivable sins from Jude? Our first scripture showed us that there is a grave seriousness attached to vilifying God's Spirit. It's described as a sin that can bring you right up to the dangerous door of destruction and is a dire warning regarding the respect and reverence we need when dealing with God's Spirit in any way. Our next scripture will take us further and point out actual sins that bring eternal death. So we've set up an introduction and now we're going to go to the Jude scriptures and, 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 and work this thing through and get into some more specifics. I think we need a quick explanation of death. The Bible describes a two kinds of death, the one we see every day at funerals and in war, people going into the grave, awaiting their promised resurrection. But Revelation 26 and 14 and Revelation 21, 8 tells us there's something called the second death. And this is the fate of two classes of people. One, those during this age of the gospel message going out who are called by God, who dedicate themselves to him and to whom he gave his Holy Spirit, his power and influence, and they turn their back on him. 
but two, the everybody else who, after they're resurrected in the kingdom, have had ample time to learn and rehabilitate, but they still reject God. So you've got kind of regular death, first death, and a second death as described in Revelation. So in other words, this means sins that bring eternal death because there is no additional ransom sacrifice from Jesus in order to provide a second resurrection. For more on the ransom, we refer our listeners to episode 1086, Are Jesus' Ransom and Our Salvation the Same? So we look at this and we say, as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, one for one. There's no second opportunity after you've been given that one opportunity, called out ones now, uh, rest of the world later. All right, so let's look at those texts in the book of Jude we read at the beginning. Jude says that he had intended on writing an uplifting epistle, but instead he's compelled to write a sober warning to the early church because of the darkness and deception that had worked its way into the flock. Now, we said earlier that Jude uses a lot of vivid imagery, and we won't be able to get to all of it today, but remember Jude one thirteen ends with, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We want to know who goes to that darkness, and is that a reference to this second death described in Revelation? And you know, it is a reference to the second death described in Revelation because when it says, as an Adam all die, think about it. Adam died and would have stayed dead for eternity had not Jesus ransomed him. This is what it's describing. It's describing a death from which there is no longer a ransom. So yes, we look at that absolutely as one that goes into eternity. Who goes there? That's the big question we want to know. Well, let's unfold what happens in the book of Jude and look at the symptoms of those who participate in this, because Jude gets very, very, very vivid and specific here. So the examples in the book of Jude show us sins that are not forgivable. They apply to someone who deviously leads others astray. We're going to be looking at Jude chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, verses 4 to 13. Beginning with verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Licentiousness means promiscuous, unrestrained, disregarding rules and standards, indecent behavior. So these certain persons who have crept in on notice, are these people outsiders, do you think, who intentionally pose as churchgoers with the intent to deceive the flock? And, and that's certainly the way the Scripture sounds. However, we believe that these individuals being described here began as called-out ones who had been blessed uh, with God's Spirit and God's blessing. So, no, we're saying, no, they're not outsiders that come in. To, they're not wolves that come in, but they become wolf-like from within. Why do we say that? We have two reasons for believing that's what this verse is referring to. First, it says that they, quote, turned the grace of God. What does it mean, turned the grace of God? It means to transfer, transport, exchange, change sides. So you can't transport or exchange something you don't have. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's look at a few other uses of this word for turned. Uh, Jonathan, we're going to look at Galatians, and then we're going to look at Hebrews. Go ahead, Galatians 1.6. And this is from the King James Version. I marvel that you are so soon removed 
from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. In other words, you had it and then walked away from it. Yeah, it's pretty simple. You had it and you turned. Hebrews 7.12 is our second example. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Well, the priesthood was one thing, but then it became something else. So again, you have this change from one thing to another. So that's the first reason that we look at this is because the word seems like you have to have ownership in order to to turn the grace of God. The second reason that we believe these individuals were granted God's grace and spirit first is that Jude uses two examples to parallel their experience. Both of his examples showed God's favor being unmistakably present before darkness took hold. So each of these next two examples give us a pattern that Jude is saying these individuals follow. Jude chapter 1, verse 5 for the first one. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. All of Israel had been delivered out of bondage, out of the bondage of slavery. And how did that happen? Remember, it happened by the blood of the Lamb. For a refresher on how that reference to being delivered from Egypt pictured the future deliverance of first faithful Christians and then the entire world from sin and death because of Jesus as the Lamb, listen to episode 1224, Why Should Christians Care About Israel's Deliverance from Slavery? It's a really good episode. So, Rick, when you say blood of the Lamb, like the firstborn who were delivered from death, if the literal Passover lamb's blood was on their doorpost, you're referring to what that foreshadowed. Faithful Christians now, whom God has called and accepted, are considered by God to be justified by Christ's sacrifice. And applying this blood of Jesus allows us to have a relationship with God, with Jesus as our advocate, with a reference of 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And so what we see is those in Israel who were delivered from slavery all had the grace of the blood of the Lamb that opened the door to freedom. All of them had God's grace in their lives. That's the first example. Let's go to Jude 1 verse 6 for the second example of those who lost God's grace. And angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So you think about it. Angels who didn't keep their own domain. Angels who walked away from God. Every single angelic being was created in the perfection and the harmony of God's spiritual family. Every single one of them. Those who fell chose to follow Satan instead of their creator. They made a choice. They had everything going for them. They, were, they knew God, and they walked away. So you look at these two examples, and you see that grace was present first, and then there was a change of heart. And that's why we look at this and say, these individuals, Judah's using these examples, we see them as in the same category. Grace was present first, and then they chose something very different. Where did it bring them? Well, next Jude shows the dark consequences of willfully walking away from the blood of the Lamb and the favor of God's presence into a wanton and immoral life. Let's go to Jude chapter 1, verse 7. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, wait a minute. We've said over and over again on Christian Questions that there's no such thing as hellfire being a place of eternal torture for punishment, and yet here it is. Punishment of eternal fire. What does that mean? Well, the first point in this verse is that Sodom and Gomorrah will have the ability to repent and be forgiven, as we see in Matthew ten fifteen during the judgment. The word eternal means age-lasting, and fire means destruction. It is required to prove full repentance by living in righteousness. If there is no repentance or turning away from sin, then second death or destruction will be the final penalty. Okay. When you look at that, you say punishment of eternal fire. Well, we are, we, we are going to be referring to a verse that t- talks about eternal darkness. You can't have fire and darkness at the same time if they're both literal. The fire produces a destruction, which equals eternal darkness. Adam would have been in eternal darkness had it not been for Jesus. Now, some believe the expression sin unto death means that God is going to literally strike down and physically kill those who deliberately disobey him. They use the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 to 10. And I think we just have to look around at the headlines and see that there are many people deliberately disobeying God who are walking around just fine, and even those who profess to be Christian. And, you know, when, when, when you look at something like that, folks, listen, please. The Bible is a big book. Don't take a phrase and build a doctrine out of a phrase. And that's what's happening here. If that was the case, and God would d- destroy everybody who vilified his spirit, guess who would have died first? Satan. But yet he lives on. You can't make that happen in the context of Scripture. That's not at all what it's talking about. There's a very specific application here that we need to look at. So we, we, we look at this whole thing. And, and now let's get to the symptoms. Sin unto death symptoms. First one, it is, a gro- it, it is a gross immorality to shun God's grace and presence in your life and replace them with the idolatry of self. Replace God's grace with the idolatry of self. Let's look at Jude uh, 1, 8 and 9. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's an important phrase that we're going to come back to in a little bit. But here's a sin unto death symptom in Jude 1, 8, 9. Willfully defiling the flesh, and I said willfully, not by accident, willfully defiling the flesh in spite of being bought with a price. And that phrase, bought with a price, we find in 1 Corinthians 6.20. I'll read it from the Amplified Bible. You were bought with a price. You were actually purchased with the precious blood of Jesus and made his own. So then, honor and glorify God with your body. So this is directly defying the being bought with a price. Another symptom, another sin unto death symptom here. Willfully rejecting authority and speaking evil of things higher than themselves. Now, the Apostle Peter also had words about these types of fallen beings. And we look at that in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 10 from the Weymouth translation. 
and especially those who are abandoned to sensuality, craving, as they do, for polluted things and scorning control. This means rewriting the rules to where it's all about me. Hmm. Foolhardy and self-willed, they do not tremble when speaking evil of glorious beings. Self-willed. You've got to understand self-will is a huge part of this. Not acting out of ignorance, not just making a mistake. This is self-willed will we're talking about here in spite of such vile descriptions jude you see that this is this this is not good behavior and yet jude does not call out anyone by name he calls out the actions and leaves the judgment to god himself and he used the example of michael the archangel not judging not not rebuking satan not rebuking the devil saying the lord rebuke you He's not naming names. This is important. Jude understands the sobriety of this and that it's judgment that's in God's hands only. Let's go to Jude 1, verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. So here's another sin unto death symptom. Willfully, not by accident, willfully being subject to fleshly ways, by shunning their personal transformation by the Holy Spirit into that new creation that's talked about in Corinthians, becoming a new, new creation of God. You're willfully shunning that and willfully clinging to and subjecting yourself to fleshly ways. More sin unto death symptoms come in Jude 1, verses 11 to 13. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, willful, jealous pride. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, willful, selfish greed, and perished in the rebellion of Korah, willful, open defiance. So willful, jealous pride, willful, selfish greed, willful, open defiance, willingly subjecting yourself to fleshly ways, willingly rejecting the authority, spiritual authority, willingly defiling your flesh, because once you were bought with a price, this is what brings that eternal death. This is what brings it. The dangers of sin unto death are in Jude 1, 12 to 13. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Well, let's look at this verse in pieces. Okay. Men who are reefs in your love feast. When you allow them to just be, you're allowing destruction to be in your presence. Their influence can shipwreck others when not challenged. Clouds without water. They don't do any good. There is no water or truth in them. Carried along by winds. They are pushed around with every wind of doctrine, with no doctrinal foundation. Autumn trees have no fruit. They are worthless at this point. They lost the fruit of the Spirit. Wild waves of the sea. This is symbolic of the restless masses of humanity, wild and out of control. Black darkness reserved forever. It's a very dangerous situation to allow this influence of darkness to be in our midst. Well, how sobering. Think about it. Knowing the truth, staying with the truth, living up to the truth, having an environment that is scripturally sound, morally sound, and doctrinally sound is so important. Protect the flock. 
So back to my original questions. Who goes to that darkness, that black darkness reserved forever? Those who fit this description, someone who once received the spirit of God and in effect wasted it. So is this black darkness reserved forever second death? This black darkness reserved forever is second death. Again, a reminder, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You've shunned the gift of God. It was given to you. God, through Jesus, ransomed you, and you threw it away on purpose. Not by accident, not out of ignorance. You threw it away on purpose. In Jude, it describes leadership gone awry. It's not a good situation. So, Jonathan, sin, judgment, and forgiveness. What do we have? Jude is disturbingly blunt about the kinds of things we must avoid in those who would be influential in the body of Christ. It is one thing to fall into sins and fully repent, but it is another thing entirely to willfully walk into such sins with the pride of a seared conscience. The willfulness herein displayed is not only a personal way of life, it seeks to derail others as well. So this leadership leads to very, very dark results, especially for the leaders, but for those of us also who allow them to be in their midst. So we look at this, it is hard to fathom such moral and spiritual degradation in someone who had previously been called and begotten of Christ. With that depressing warning, here's the next question. Are all sins unto death as blatant and obvious as what we have just seen? Well, the answer here is both yes and no. Yes, any sin that leads to second death will be obvious, but it does not necessarily have to be so blatant. The key to all of this for each of us is to know from the inside out who we serve. Has my way or man's way drawn my attention and loyalty from God's way? Often with this topic, people want to know about suicide. Is the person who takes their own life, did they commit this sin unto death? Are they automatically lost to the second death and won't receive a resurrection in the kingdom? That's a, that's a, a big question. And the answer, you ask the, the, you ask the question in a very specific way. Are they automatically uh, reserved for this second death? And the answer is no. No. There, there's, th- that's not automatic. Why do I say that? Because we can't read the heart. We don't know what kind of damage that person was dealing with in their life, what kind of trauma, what kind of things that they just lost hope in. It, they may not have, have, have forcefully uh, rejected God but they just might have been overcome with grief. The thing is, God knows. And God will not accidentally put somebody into that second death category that doesn't belong there. His mercy and his love and his justice are far above all of that. So we need to keep that in in, in clear perspective. Let's look to the next set of scriptures in in the book of Hebrews. Paul in the book of Hebrews is very specific as to what things one walks away from uh, to forfeit God's grace and lose all hope for life. Now we're getting into not leadership, but the everybody else of that, that, that could be subject to this second death. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All right, we've got a lot of things here, and what these are are sin unto death conditions. So let's go through these. And let's look at this verse in pieces. Okay, so let's start with once been enlightened. Having been taught the gospel. Having tasted of the heavenly gift. Having been bought by Jesus' blood, having been justified. Being made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Have shared in the begetting of God's power and influence. Tasted the good word of God. Have been partakers of God's plan and promises. And tasted the powers of the age to come. Have partaken in the power of regeneration as new creatures. That phrase, new creatures, it comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this is a new life, a spiritual life within us. It's a special privilege allowing us to have a relationship with God through Christ. And such a person sinning woefully against light and knowledge, there is no more sacrifice for his sins. He has had his share of Christ's sacrifice and has misused it. And there is none remaining for him. So we have these conditions You've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, been made partaker of Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the ages to come. What, what happens then? What, you've, got, you've had these things and you've walked away. What's the, what's the result? Hebrews 6, verse 6. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Well, the word translated impossible means unable or weak. Now, some argue that this word for impossible can mean weak in the book of Hebrews. While the definition says it can, Paul's word, uh, Paul's use of the word is clear. Hebrews 6.18, it was impossible for God to lie. Well, can't be weak there. Hmm. Hebrews 10.4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Again, weak doesn't work. How about Hebrews eleven six? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. In all cases, weak doesn't fit. Paul is consistent. And that's, you know, when, when words have different definitions, what we like to do is look at, okay, how did the author use that word in other places? Because it helps us to see their mind, and it's very clear. And these other three Hebrew scripture, scriptures, impossible, means impossible. It's impossible to renew them again because you need a new ransom, and they've already used it up. That's essentially what it's saying. The Apostle Paul continues in Hebrews with a description of the end result of denying what was once accepted and embraced by those who walk away. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it was also tilled, receiving a blessing from God. But if it, that same tilled ground, yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So you said impossible to renew them again. 
this is only applicable to those who, again, have been called, chosen, received the Holy Spirit. It's a sin against clear knowledge. If these should completely turn their backs on what they professed, they no longer believe they have essentially rejected the blood of Christ. There's no additional sacrifice of Jesus to justify them again. But the good news is, and we tell this to so many of our listeners, this doesn't apply to most people or even most Christians. Okay, two things. It's not only a sin against clear knowledge. It's a sin against clear grace and clear favor. It's a sin against being called and acceptable to God to the point where he gives you his spirit. That's a big sin. That's a big, big sin. And you know, you can look at this and say, oh, I don't have to worry about it. I can do whatever I want. Hold on. No, you can't. Because if you're listening to this, you now have more responsibility for honoring and reverencing God Almighty and his plans than you did before. So don't take the tack that, okay, it doesn't apply to me, so I'm free. No, because you're going to carry your sins, and you're going to have to be accountable for them. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 12. In the next age, do not take anything for granted. Live with the highest level of righteousness you can, no matter who you are uh, listening at this point. So the bottom line here is the whole second death experience is a choice. While we can be deceived into sinning, we cannot be deceived into choosing to live by denying our Lord. It all comes down to willful choice. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You see, you have insulted the Spirit of grace. You vilified the Spirit of grace along with these other things. That combination, folks, is a deadly combination. You know, it's like mixing bleach and ammonia. Both are cleaning elements. Great. You don't want to do that. It's a deadly combination. You don't go here because there's no way to come back from it. If you have been given God's spirit and his grace and his favor and have understood his truth. So what we have in this verse are sin unto death results. And now we go back through the scripture. This is so powerful because it applies when a person has, what does it say? Trampled underfoot the son of God regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, insulted the spirit of grace. And as you said, there's no recovery if you've had the goodness of God and voluntarily elected to reject him. This is a blatant choice. No one falls into second death by accident. Hmm. And, and that's so important to remember. It doesn't happen. So if you're worried about, oh no, I did something wrong. I, I, I don't want to go into second death. You know, am I going to go? If you're worried about it, the best thing to do is to take your worry, go before the throne of grace, and the answer is no, you're not, because you're not willfully walking away. Your conscience has, 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 has God's grace in it. You need to use that and stand up, make good what you did, and continue. The bottom line with this whole conversation is this. We, we want to protect ourselves 
from even considering the thinking that opens the door to considering such actions. What I'm saying is consider the consideration that considers considering (laughs) the bad stuff. Stop way before you get here. Several examples of how to do this. Examine our thoughts and actions. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Stop anything and everything that is ungodly. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Get help from those who are spiritual. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And we want to pray. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Be humble, 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And once you have all of this done and all of this memorized, what do you do? Repeat it. Hmm. Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what we want to be focusing on is not, did I do that bad, bad thing, but how much more can I work at doing those righteous things, those godly things? That's what we want in our minds. Forgiveness is powerful when we ask for it, and then when we repent and we live forgiven. Jonathan, one last time, sin, judgment, and forgiveness. If we love God and really try to follow Jesus, then we are not in any danger of the willful sins that bring second death. However, this does not mean we will have a free ride. Our life as a Christian will be full of trials and hard experience. Let's see those experiences through God's eyes and live in his love for us through Christ. All right, I've got some final questions for you. This was our title, What Sins Can Never Be Forgiven? What Sins Are Unpardonable? Well, we see an unpardonable sin as vilifying God's spirit. And to vilify God's spirit, you have to have a, a, a sense of it, a reverence for it, and an understanding of it, and turn it and accuse it and look at it as being evil and dark. And do unforgivable sins and these sins unto death, we've talked about two of them, are they the same punishment? Are they synonymous? Well, unforgivable sins can bring us to the door of sins unto death, but they can also bring us to the door of needing to do what we must do to rebuild things. That's a choice. So that unforgivable sin is not a sin that Jesus takes away from you. It's a sin that you bear the consequences of uh, either in this age or in the next age. The sin unto death, you've gone past all of that. And what you've done is you've decided that God is no longer important to you. The blood of Jesus is worthless. And I can't even say these words. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, and God's spirit is, 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 a, is a piece of darkness. And you trample on the whole thing. Don't go down that road. Folks, this is a hard subject. But we want you to understand that the average person is not, does not have liability here. But we all have responsibility to what we know. Let us honor God with reverence in every aspect. 
don't play games with with mocking this or that. It's not going to bring anything good. Look up, praise God, live, ask for forgiveness, repent, and move on. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really look forward to hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback at ChristianQuestions.com. Next week, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? Talk to you then. Mm -hmm.